the book of Matthew in the New Testament. It's the first book um, found in the New Testament. Um, and in chapter six, as part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, um, because in this passage where Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, he's literally unpacking a slew of topics ranging uh, from the Beatitudes, which are like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, to lust, to divorce, to giving, to fasting. Uh, and right in the middle of, of this passage, we find uh, this, this topic that we're going to talk about today, which is anxiety and worry. So before we, uh, before we get going, this is a safe place. I just want to, just for all of us to be eased a little bit. Some of you may already feel, be feeling anxious and, and full of worry, just the fact that we're going to talk about this today. Um, so just by show of hands, how many of you could say at some point in your life, worry or anxiety has, has marked you? Now look around the room for just a second, Okay. This is the biggest bunch of me too that we could, all, you know, we could possibly have. We're all in this together, and you're not alone in this time. Um, we, we all wrestle with it. We're born as, as sinners, even as babies, with this inherent nature to, to not trust, with an inherent nature to, to mistrust, to mistrust that what God has for us is best. And so as babies, we, we are anxious about food, or maybe a dirty diaper, uh, a toy that we don't have or the fear of missing out and then we kind of mature over time into this anxiety uh, about asking questions like what do people think about me? Do I look good? Do I earn enough money? How will I pay the bills? What if I don't get enough respect? Is my marriage okay? Will the kids be all right? What if I'm alone? Am I, am I really known? What worries you? Ask yourself that question this morning. What worries you? What makes you anxious? For every season, there's something to be anxious about. When we finish school, we worry about getting a job. If we have money, we worry about getting more money. If, if uh, we don't have money, we worry about making money. If, if we're single, we may worry about getting married someday, wondering whether or not we'll be single forever, if we'll be alone. When we get married, we worry about the health of our marriage. If you have kids, you, you worry about them. There's kind of this like helicopter parent thing. We just kind of hover above them, hoping that everything is okay all the time. Whoa, whoa, easy, bud. Don't run into the wall. Don't do this. Don't eat that. Don't put that in your mouth. All the things that we just constantly want to control the environment around us. Life is this endless cycle of worries. And there's no end to what we're capable of worrying at. So before we get going, I just want to pray. Because I'm anxious right now. Standing in front of you. I'm feeling, I felt in the first service, the week leading into this sermon, the Lord just was raking me over this passage. And so I just want to ask the Lord to teach us to relieve our fears and worries through his word this morning. So will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage us this morning. Lord, that if, just as we read in the call to worship, for those who are weary and burdened, for those of us who are struggling in this life, which is every one of us in this room, if we're being honest, would you remind us, Lord, of your love for us? And for those this morning who don't yet know you, would you call them to yourself? I pray that our hearts would not be hardened to your word, but they would be soft and receptive, Lord. 
that your spirit would be able to teach us. And for those of us who are skeptics and doubters, Lord, we, we know that we can't address our doubt with more doubt. We have to address our doubt with truth, with what's real. And so would you be truth for us this morning? Would you make your presence known in our lives and in this time together through your spirit? In Christ's name we pray, amen. I remember one time, one of the most anxious times of my life, I, uh, I decided to build a house. Um, and, and leading into this, I had never built anything in my life other than just a tree fort. I mean, really, just huge difference there. Tree fort, home that you're gonna live in and reside in. And, and not only was I building a house, my wife and I bought a house on the cheap, and, and the friends that we bought the house from wanted the house moved. And so they gave us a deal on the house, and the moving part was the part that became a source of extreme anxiety to me, uh, pulling out all kinds of emotions and all kinds of things. So we lived in this tiny little mountain town, extremely remote in Colorado, and we buy this house from our friends, and, and the day comes um, basically to move the house, and there was only one man on the, that entire part of the state, really, that could, could move this house. And he told me that he could put our house on top of the Empire State Building. And I said, I don't want it on, on top of the Empire State Building. I want it on the piece of property that we bought. If you can just get it there in one piece, that's fantastic. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, totally fine. So he drives up, and he's got this uh, 1950s, like, three-speed international rusty bucket truck that he's going to pull our house up the mountain. And, and not only that, but they, they lift the house with some bottle jacks, some things you would use to fix your vehicle. And, and it's just lifted up, and then they roll these two large steel beams underneath the house, put some axles underneath it, and that is it. There's no straps. There were no chains or structural things just holding it together. And so just seeing it was a, was a source of anxiety for me. I was like, I don't want to look at it. It was hard to look at. But the day came to move the house, and I'm not talking about packing up the boxes and things. Things were still in the house while we were moving them. And, and he lifts the house up, and he starts to drive. And I had basically, we had employed the local police department to shut down the highway because it was a two-lane road, and we needed the entire two lanes to fit the house down the road. And so we have the, the payroll running on the police department, and we start driving, and about a, less than a mile down the road, I'm driving behind the vehicle, my heart's pounding through my chest, and I see the whole house just kind of set. And a wheel kicks out, and, and I'm immediately feeling a range of emotions, uh, <laughs> mostly what the heck just happened, and, and how do we fix this? And uh, so we ended up having to go and, and basically fabricate a, an axle. Meanwhile, the highway's shut down. There's nobody in town that can fix this thing. And uh, long story short, we eventually get the house to the piece of property, finish the house, I'm done with it, I don't wanna ever build a house again. All the things that came with that, but for me in that moment was so paralyzing and so much anxiety and fear. And for much of us in this room, maybe we don't have situations to that degree that we're pushed to that point, but the reality is, is that this marks us. And, and so I wanna look at four different ways that our culture would tell us to address or to fix our anxiety and fear. The first would be to obey your worry. Let your worries drive you. Worry and anxiety in this view are helpful as indicators of what is most pressing in our life. 
Listen to your worries. Let them set the agenda. This fits the pursuit of a workaholic or an insomniac, a hyperactive exerciser, overachiever, a slave to productivity. Obeying your worry always starts with really good intentions. But over time, it just kind of snowballs because it really doesn't satisfy our heart. It doesn't get to the heart issue of what is making us anxious. And so in the end, we're left burned out or bitter and alone in our achievements. A second solution would be maybe to fight your worry. Just fight it. Train yourself for mental toughness. Meditate. Meditate harder. Calm yourself. Compartmentalize your thoughts. Engage in the endless succession of mental tips and tricks from an avalanche of self-help books. Go to a bookstore that's the largest section in the bookstore, self-help. Breathe in, breathe out, wax on, wax off. <laughs> fight your worries. Maybe you'll find success in the fight for a season, but ironically, you'll find yourself worrying about whether or not you're doing the technique right. Am I doing this okay? Is, is this what it's, how it's supposed to go? We're anxious about the decreasing effectiveness of what amounts to an elaborate game of self-deception. It never again really addresses the true heart of our worry, of our fear. A third solution would be just to ignore your worry. Just ignore it. This is the advice of Buddha and most of the modern day mystics. They say things like, the world is a dream, desire is suffering, pain is an illusion. Detach yourself from this world and its worries and find a light enlightenment. And you will find peace and freedom from your anxiety. And Buddha gets at least this part right. I'll give him credit. The world is less important than we think it is. But doesn't cutting out the valleys eliminate our appreciation for the mountaintops? What, what kind of peace does this path lead to when our response to our worry and anxiety is just to act like it doesn't exist? What if the source of our worry and stress are things that are close to us, like our family, our wife, our kids? Do you just act like they don't exist? Oh, you're stressing me out. I'm just going to peace out. Wouldn't they feel rejected? Yeah. This is not a solution. We would miss out on deep human relationships and true intimacy and purpose-filled work. So like all the other remedies, ignorance proves unsatisfying because it's still focused on the symptom rather than the solution. Another solution would be to medicate our worries. You might drive worries away with alcohol or with food or with drugs. Maybe some Netflix and just zoning out on a TV show, watching, just binge watching one after another, video games, Maybe some recreational therapy, just exercise, I'm just gonna go out and just kind of get in nature and find my way, or maybe a shopping spree to, to treat yourself. Maybe pornography. Maybe that would be an effective escape. The dangers are extremely addictive and extremely destructive. And drugs can be prescribed for driving away our anxiety until they wear off and the anxiety comes just creeping back. Self-medicating to find relief avoids confronting the, the root issue. Using medication can be helpful for extreme cases of anxiety and depression, but if it doesn't confront the real issue, 
beneath our anxiety, then it's still not a solution. So what are, what are we to do? What are, what are we as followers of Jesus to do? If you're not a follower of Jesus, what do you do? What is the invitation? How do we cope with our fear and anxiety? How do we address it? Jesus gives the only real answer here. So I wanna warn you as we approach this, this chapter, Matthew chapter six, that we're gonna have to walk through some tough stuff. It might be a little scary for some of us because when Jesus goes after our fear and anxiety, he does it in a way that's really uncomfortable. For most of us, we don't like this at all. He wants to put his arm around us and he wants to walk right through the heart of our fear and anxiety just to show us on the other side that we had nothing to be afraid of to begin with. And so this morning, prepare your heart. Jesus will lean in heavy, but he will land compassionately like he always does. So let's read our passage, Matthew chapter six. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. There's gonna be some uh, text on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter six, starting at verse 25. Jesus begins this section. He says, therefore, I tell you. I wanna pause there just for a second and take note of the word therefore. Anytime you see in the Bible the word therefore, you wanna look and see what it's there for. Amen. Amen, yes. In light of these things that I just told you, what things? Jesus just finishes, right before this, addressing generosity. He addresses our prayer life, how to pray, our spiritual disciplines and practices surrounding how we are to fast. And then he, he finishes out with addressing how we are to invest in light of eternity. With this eternal focus, some big questions surrounding this. How do we invest in light of eternity? Are you holding your life and the things in it up against an infinite horizon? Or is it only about the here and now? And so Jesus continues on pressing in with this, therefore, in light of these things that I just told you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither uh, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We really could just close the book right there, and that would be good. Just meditate on that truth. But I want to look closely at what Jesus is arguing for here. The heart attitude that Jesus warns against is this kind of gnawing, fearful attitude towards the future. Some definitions would even say it's, uh, it's a, def a definition of worry and anxiety as 
stressing about something that might happen. Not that will happen, that might happen. Note that Jesus commands us three different times not to worry. Do not be anxious about your life, verse 25. Therefore, do not be anxious, in verse 31. And then again, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, in verse 34. By repeating his command three times, Jesus is not trying to add to our worries by commanding us not to worry. Rather, he is emphasizing the trustworthiness of the Father who desires to provide all that we truly need. He is emphasizing the trustworthiness of our Father who desires to care for us and give us what we most desperately need. To do this, Jesus argues that worry and anxiety focus on the wrong values. He argues that anxiety and worry is ultimately pointless. And he argues that worry and anxiety are ultimately mistrustful. So I wanna unpack for us those three arguments and then we'll get to just some practical application for us. So the first point for today is this argument that Jesus makes that worry and anxiety focus on the wrong values. Notice in verse 26, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you not of more value than they? In this passage, Jesus begins with this kind of eternal perspective by holding the things that we tend to focus on against the infinite horizon, against eternity. He even compares us to birds, affirming that birds are good and that God cares for them. But here's what I've noticed. I don't know if you paid attention to this. Birds aren't lazy. They're not. They're super active, they, they build nests, they take care of their young, they do the things they were made to do, they work hard, and they glorify God in that, in getting to do what they were made to do. But here's the thing, birds are not made in the image of God. Birds aren't able to do some of the things that you and I are able to do. Other creatures aren't able to do the things that you and I are able to do. We can open a refrigerator we can grill some meat on a, on a grill and cook out for the 4th of July. We can enjoy the things that God has given to us and do things that other animals and creatures aren't able to do. But you know what happens when birds get old? They die. Sad. They die, just like you and me. Stuff eats them. They get hit by a car. They die. Yet does not the Lord provide for them? And aren't you of more value than they are? You are the pinnacle of God's creation. Jesus is implicitly evoking the creation order of Genesis 1, in which God creates all things, and then on the sixth and final day, he creates man in his own image, breathing life into Adam in a special and unique act of creation. God, who with such great care and precision created us, now desires to care for us. That is awesome. And my question is, why? Why does he desire to care for us? For his glory. For his glory. John Piper puts it this way. He says that you are valuable because you are created in the image of God and are therefore an expression of God's glory. Humans have value in that they, unlike all the animals, have the unique 
potential to consciously honor God by thanking him and relying on his mercy alone. The Bible is saying here, if God provides for the birds that are of so much lesser value than you are, how much more will he care for you, the crown and glory of his creation? When we worry, we believe the lie that we are beyond or beneath his attention. So you get this encouragement from Jesus to work hard, be good stewards, and then to trust the Lord. Rely on Christ for mercy and for care. The second point I wanna make is that worry is pointless. Note in verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Worry has no power or ability to accomplish anything. Jesus is contrasting the powerlessness of worry with the power that comes from trusting God. Think of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter four. He repeats the command of do not worry, but then he affirms that trusting God brings peace and then concludes with emphasis that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Worry gives no strength. God gives strength. This is an interesting argument because Jesus is not addressing anxiety and worry with a super intellectual or complicated theological reason. It's a basic conclusion. He's down in the trenches of actual human life and from the trenches he points out the obvious that worry is a waste. Worry is a waste. We can spend an enormous amount of time and energy simply turning over one bad idea in our heads after another. This could happen. What about this? I have no idea. What about this? And we're just anxious. We're just balled up anxious. And I'm telling you right now, I struggle with this. Me too, big time. And my son, he's three years old, he reeks of this. All, I mean, just it's there. And what I mean by that is like if I... If, if my wife comes home from the grocery store and she has groceries on the table, she has put thought into what we need to make food, to prepare a meal, and he can see it, he knows it's coming, he's not gonna starve, but his anxiety drives him to the, I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry. Now. I'm hungry. I mean, he just keeps going. We're like, I know, bud, like I know. I love you, it's coming, hold on, hold on. It's a waste. It doesn't help speed up the process anymore. I'm hungry. This truth that worry and anxiety are ceaseless motions that get us nowhere so widely recognized that even the culture that we lived in, that live in is, is kind of hijacked this teaching and sought application for it in everyday situations. So, ever heard of these? The, the greatest mistake that you can make in life is to be continually fearing that you'll make one. Worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. These things are, are, are all around us and point to the reality, the basic truth that worry is a waste, it's pointless. The truth is that we need a greater power, something deeper than ourselves, and so Jesus goes deeper. He keeps going after the object of our trust. At the root of, of anxiety and fear and, and worry, that is what is in play, is our trust. 
See, the thing is, is in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 1, we were created to know God and to be fully known by God, to trust him. And when sin enters the world through the fall, it was as a result of mistrust that I don't believe that what God has for me is best for me. That what I want is maybe better than what God could provide for me. We do this, you and I. And so that trust was broken, it was shattered. And it rests on this view that, that what God has is not best. Jesus is inviting us to trust. Look at verses 28 through 30. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, he's saying, today it's alive, tomorrow it dies. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Solomon was the king of Israel during a time of peace and prosperity. And because of his extreme wealth, the Lord blessed him with wisdom and wealth beyond measure. Still to this day, no, no man has touched what Solomon was able to achieve in his life with God's help. And he was known to just rock some extremely luxurious robes. I mean, just blinging out all the time. Living this life of just prosperity and, and wealth. And Jesus compares Solomon to the flowers of the field and asserts that God made the flowers even more beautiful than Israel's richest and most prosperous king. And if he cares for something as seemingly insignificant as grass to clothe it so splendidly, it would require a low view of God's character to believe that he would not also care for us. Being anxious rests on a lie that no one cares about you, that you're on your own. And that if you don't look out for yourself, that no one will. Friends, God made you. He made you. And he is for you. He loves you. He is passionately devoted to his people. Why? For his renown. For his glory. So that we would live our lives as a trophy of his grace. Not so that we could get more so that God would be glorified in our lives. So God invites us into the trust that we were made for, into the trust that we were intended for. And here's the thing, Jesus is trustworthy. You and I, no. We fall short. Jesus proved that he was trustworthy because he did what he said he was gonna do on the cross. He paid the debt that I could not pay he died the death that I deserved so that I could be set free. He proved his trustworthy nature and character. So what's the alternative to a life of anxiety and worry? Jesus gives his alternative in the conclusion of this passage when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Notice that he does not tell us to obey our anxiety or fear or worry. He doesn't tell us to fight it. He doesn't tell us to ignore it or anything else. He tells us to overwhelm our concern for ordinary things with the mindfulness of a coming kingdom. 
He tells us to overwhelm our concerns for the here and now with the mindfulness of a coming kingdom, that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back to take us home. He's contrasting a life characterized by seeking God's kingdom against a life characterized by pursuit of selfishness and things that we want when we think this is best. That's why he offers his loving rebuke in verse 30 when he says, oh, you of little faith. What is little faith? And who are those who have little faith? Faith is a religious sounding word for trust. Jesus is asking, who and what do you trust? Is your trust in yourself? Is your trust in your paycheck or your talent? That faith is little. Do you trust in your discipline and your work effort? Maybe your healthy living? So I'm asking you, Christian, this morning, what and who do you trust? For those of you in this room who don't yet know Christ, who and what do you trust? Is it in yourself or is it in God? In view of eternity, little faith, little trust, this is insignificant and insufficient because the object that we place our trust in is little. The opposite of little faith is what Jesus is talking about in verse 33, the kingdom of God. That is not little trust. And so we are to overwhelm ourselves with the mindfulness of this coming kingdom, a big kingdom for a big God, a kingdom that will have no end. When we seek first God's kingdom, we are putting ourselves in the hands of a good and loving Father who desires to care for us. We are resting in the trustworthiness of his character. We also put our cares and concerns in, in proper perspective. We see that the reality of God and his glory is so much more important than the things that, that we tend to worry about. And it becomes easier to trust that God takes care of us even when it doesn't seem like we're getting what we need. Jesus promises that if we do this, all these things will be added unto you. What does this mean? Does it mean that if, if I come to Southbridge every Sunday, if I join a small group, if I become a member here, if I give, if I strive to be a good person, that God will give us whatever we desire? No, that is karma. That is not the gospel. Jesus is offering us freedom from this striving. He's promising to provide us with what we most truly need. Because just two chapters previously in Matthew, the devil tempted Jesus with all of the food that he could ever want, seemingly meeting all of the needs that Jesus had. And Jesus replies, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God is what we most truly need. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the word of God. And later in John chapter 6, Jesus tells the crowd, you can read on the screen behind me, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They were desperate. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus himself is what we most desperately need. Jesus himself is what we need. 
Seek first the kingdom of God, and God will give us all of the riches found in knowing and being known by Christ. Unfathomable riches. You have a trustworthy father who loves you and is for you. Whether you knew that this morning when you came in here and you've heard the sermon over and over again or not. Maybe you haven't been to church in a long time. I pray and I've been praying for you that you would hear this and that you would respond this morning to the father's call to trust him, to place your life in the hands of the one who wants to care for you and is capable of doing so. This is the good news, that God could not love you more than he already does. And he displayed that love in the most sacrificial way by sending his own son to be the substitute for you and I as a ransom for our sin, for our fear, for our anxiety, even for our low view of his creation so that we might be set free. He knew full on what he was purchasing when he paid that price. It's as if he was a farmer. And and contrary to what any other farmer would do, he purchased a piece of land that had no promise, no hope to bear fruit. The land was desolate, had no promise to amount to anything, and he didn't negotiate down the price to try to get a bargain. No, he, he purchased that land paying the most expensive, paying full price He said, no, I will pay more because that land is mine. He purchased our freedom at Calvary, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, from our sin and fear of not being able to do enough and our anxiety, the million what-if scenarios that play through our head every day. He paid the price that I could never pay knowing that I would struggle to trust him. Knowing that you would struggle to trust him, he paid the price While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And even though I bring nothing to the table, even though you bring nothing to the table, no promise to yield fruit, he bought my life. And he paid for it with his very own. He paid it all for us. So if you do not know Jesus this morning, he is inviting you to come. Come to him, surrender Surrender your life and ask him to change your heart. Stop striving and running. Come and rest. Matthew chapter 28 says, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is an invitation to surrender our rules and religious uh, rituals in exchange for complete freedom found in belief in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Freedom from religious acts of trying to earn favor with God. Freedom from performance or duty and freedom from our anxiety and worry. Friends, this is true peace. This is shalom. This is the garden before the fall. On earth as it will be in heaven. There's no shame or guilt to come to Jesus and find rest. Would you pray with me? I want to conclude as we transition into communion with our heads bowed and our eyes closed to remember the nearness of Christ. Hebrews chapter four reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The reality of our Savior is that Jesus is not standing far off with arms folded, wondering if we'll ever wake up or if we'll figure it out. Instead, he shouldered the burden of our sin, the source of our pain and our heartache, and descended to us to reassure us in the midst of our fear and anxiety. The night that he was betrayed, he experienced fear, anxiety, worry to a degree that we cannot possibly comprehend. He was not driven by duty. He was not driven by obligation. He was driven by love. His crucifixion made way and an opportunity for our salvation, but it's also our vivid assurance of his trustworthiness in the midst of debilitating fear and anxiety and worry. So I invite you this morning just to linger and to meditate on that truth. Let us draw near and remember Christ through the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed on our behalf. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, would you just pray where you're at right now? I'll give you an opportunity just to respond. You can pray something simple, just, Heavenly Father, I need you. I confess that I'm a sinner, and I believe that you are trustworthy. You are a good Father. I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and I surrender my life to you. In a minute, we're gonna take communion, and this is something for believers, for us to remember the work of Jesus, that we proclaim his life, his death, and his resurrection until the day that he comes bursting through those clouds to take us home. Father, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to, to know your nearness and that your nearness for us is good? Our souls thirst for you and, and may we be hungry for more of you, God, more of your grace, more of your love. We surrender, God.